Mm. And during the Trump presidency, I think lots of scientists were inclined to take sides and, you know, allow. Yeah, for sure. I think we can understand. But a consequence of that is that then they, they can get labeled as, you know, one group. And so what I mean that is their voices, when they try to say something which has to reach all the population, is, is going to, you know, you're going to convince the people who don't need to be convinced because they're already in your camp and say, yes, yes, yes. And then when you mm. try to reach out, people say, well, you know, we know who you are, you are from the other camp. And so I think the key thing is to try really to reach not to make it, um, not to score political points. I mean, climate change is too important. It's not to engage in the mm. next political election to say that this candidate is bad. I think the scientists should really try to, re to reach everybody because in the long term, everybody, even people, you know, we individually can disagree politically with. Everybody has, we have a collective shared interest into the world, mm. you know, not get going too bad too quickly. So mm -hmm. that's the thing I think we can do. Try really to, to reach out to the people uh, who are skeptical in a neutral, uh, mm. neutral way. I'm joined by Lionel Page, who's a professor of economics and the director of the Behavioral and Economic Science Cluster at the University of Queensland. Lionel's research explores behavioral economics, game theory, econometrics, and its intersection with the behavioral sciences. Lionel is also the author of Optimally Irrational, The Good Reasons We Behave the Way We Do. So uh, thank you uh, for joining me, Lionel. Well, thank you very much, Xavier, for the invitation. No, absolutely. And um, look, I thought we would start off with uh, a, a little bit of a story. So um, there's all sorts of interesting stories related to cognitive bias, irrationality, um, these sort of fields that you study regarding the behavioral sciences. Um, and there's a quite a interesting uh, and perhaps a overdone story um, about uh, the sociologist Leon, Leon Festinger, who essentially he claimed he infiltrated a conspiracy group and was able to uh, join this group who believed that they had been in contact with like a godlike figure um, who, uh, and that godlike figure claimed that the, the end would come, the world would come to an end. And mm -hmm. so um, after following this cult for a while and infiltrating it, um, they said that there would be a day of reckoning where, uh, where essentially on midnight on this day, uh, God is going to come down and because we're believers are going to save all of us, but the rest of the world is going to be doomed. And so what ended up happening is what you would think, uh, uh, which is obvious is that the end of the world didn't happen, <laughs> not surprisingly. Um, but the views of the people within the cult did not change. And the reason they did not change is because they claimed because they were such good believers or something along those lines that God had actually saved them. Um, and essentially their belief in this cult uh, perpetuated, it, it did not change. And so shifting the evidence to meet their uh, foundational beliefs in this, in this uh, God figure. Um, I, I sort of tell this story as a, an example of irrationality, or perhaps it's not irrationality, we'll find out. But um, I wanted to get a bit of sense about, you know, your research is in uh, the behavioral sciences and economics. Lionel, could you tell me a bit about how you got interested in this field, uh, what your story is, and sort of how it connects to stories like I just told? Um, well, hopefully, I'm, you know, my, my story doesn't belong to the, uh, the story of people belonging to this kind of cults who uh, don't change their mind. 
Um, my personal story, you know, I was a student in uh, in economics, and 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 when I was a student, I did economics and social sciences as as as, as a student, and uh, that was very interesting. But I guess I was a bit critical. I mean, having been exposed broadly to other sciences like you know history, sociology, philosophy. I mean, philosophy is not a science, but you know, it gives you another outlook. Um, I was a bit unsatisfied, like many in my generation, with the old-style economics, um, which is sometimes called neoclassical economics, where economists were assuming that people are really good at making decisions. But a bit, when I say really good, um, maybe it's not so really so much that they are really good, but they are they're a bit like computers. So, so we were modeling, we were thinking of people as computers, um, or maybe a better image would be that uh, if you were to think about what kind of people economists were considering when 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 looking at uh, decisions, they were looking at somebody like Mr. Spock in Star Trek. That is somebody very rational, a bit like thinking like a computer, very emotionless, not a bad person. You know, Mr. Spock is not a bad person, but but um, you, you feel that there's a, a lot of layers of psychological layers Certain layers of personality of what makes us human, which were missing, uh, and so that's I was as a student at the time, and I was a bit unsatisfied with that, and and I happened to follow a very interesting course on 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 decision making under risk, and uncertainty, and it was one of the courses where uh, it was really um, uh, economics where looked like a science. That is, you know, you had theories, you had experiments where we were looking whether people were following the theory. Uh, the, the, the experiments usually were a bit negative. So we were saying, no, actually people don't um, behave like we, the theory predicts. And so there were new theories proposed to try to explain how people are behaving and why they're behaving the way they do. And then there were new experiments and often new contradictions. And, and you, you know, you when you looked at this, really you had a feeling that economics was progressing as a science. And that was very interesting. I mean, I really very I had very much of a different experience uh, working in this field than uh, the experience of a student where usually, you know, it's very top down when you do undergrad or even early graduate school and you're told that's economics, that's the way you do. And sometimes you have questions, you think, well, you know, that's very strange because this kind of uh, theory about economics doesn't look like the real world it looks very uh, different and maybe we're missing something. But you, as an uh, early as a student, as an undergrad, you don't have uh, you don't have the background really to understand the problem exactly. But also, you're not given much freedom to think. You know, you, you have first to acquire the discipline, the knowledge from the discipline, the way it is conveyed. But when I moved to graduate school and and, I, and then I, I I was exposed to this kind of research, I really liked it. And that was the entry points to behavioral sciences because basically this was really the uh, an entry point to behavioral economics. Um, behavioral economics being this area where you have psychologists and economists who have been working together, investigating the economic theories, making new theories, uh, testing theories in experiment. Typically, you know, you ask people to make decisions and you see whether people behave the way the theory predicts. And if, if the theory doesn't work, well, you try to find better theories. And so that's kind of, that experience was really um, quite fulfilling when, you, you, when you're a young scientist, you think, you know, I'm not just following 
this kind of maybe the kind of cult with the principles of you have to um, always stick to it. You can revise your beliefs, you can look for new ideas, and that was quite exciting. So that's that's my personal entry points to uh, to be all science. Mm, absolutely, um, and uh, I couldn't agree more that you know once you're exposed to ideas about behavioral sciences like psychology when you first come across cognitive bias at least for me it was like a new world had opened um and it also uh, served as quite a useful tool and another and providing another way of another lens of viewing the world especially through uh, economics where mm-hmm. i think you're taught in very first year economics that you know people are rational actors uh people don't make irrational decisions and it's only until you know behavioral economics came along where that view were sort of upended, but to to focus on that point, for all of those people who are perhaps uh, left-brained, uh, I think th- mind one, as Daniel Kahneman said, I can't quite remember what the 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 theory is, but people that think of themselves as Spock-like logical thinkers, uh, what would you have to say to them about the evidence about what behavioral sciences does to economics and how it sort of shows that? This may not necessarily be the case. What would you say to people that are a bit skeptical? So by that, you mean that you think some people are skeptical because they think they're very rational and so that that doesn't apply? Um, I mean, I'm not sure people would reasonably agree with the fact that they are very rational. Mm. Most people, you know, um, because... Mr. Spock, I, I, I don't think many people uh, would, would would see Mr. Spock and say, yeah, that's it, you know, that's, that's the kind of person I am. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, our human experience is characterized by a wide range of feelings and emotions and, and which widely differ from this Mr. Spock uh, uh, model. We, mm-hmm. uh, we fall in love, we get angry, um, you know, we have uh, gut feelings. And that's just one of the few things. I mean, you have also like very uh, a strong uh, social feelings, uh, mm. things like uh, when you go and watch uh, a football uh, or a sports event or, or even a religious event, and you know you mm-hmm. feel like you're part of the crowd, and you get this feeling of elation of you know if maybe your team win or maybe you're singing in a church, and and you get this feeling of sharing mm. a collective uh, um, event with other people. Or you have this feeling of willing to be able to help other people, like you see some people, you know, you see natural disaster and, and right away you feel empathy and, 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 and bad feeling. Even if this disaster is happening very far away, you may go online and decide to give some money for people with whom you are very unrelated. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think people, most people would recognize themselves in having this kind of emotions and uh and that is kind of normal the kind of spock uh very cold and rational is not necessarily i don't think it's really a role model and that's why mm. people from my generation um once you were exposed and once once we were exposed to the ideas from psychology the idea that we can investigate actual uh human beings instead of sticking to a very abstract model like mr spock we we wanted to look at it because that's that's the way we are, right? So we are missing something if we just assume we're rational. So I don't think I, my my answer maybe that's not the answer you wanted, but I, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Lots of people said they are super rational, and and I think if they if they think if they tell you that, I think you can really ask them. You know, um, have they not never felt uh, you know strong emotions like you know uh, uh, love, hate, anger, 
shame, all these kind of things, which which we can. So you know, we, we can talk about it afterwards. We can explain it. I mean, there's now we have a much better understanding about what's happening, and and you know, part of it in my book, optimally irrational, is to explain why there are very good reasons why we have these emotions. Um, mm. They don't make us bad decision makers if anything they make us better decision makers and mm -hmm. you know if i want to feel to continue the, the the metaphor i mean in the star trek series you know uh, uh, the classical one from the 70s i mean mr spock is officially uh, at face value he, he's the most rational but mm. often in the series they show that he's missing some aspects of reality that the mm. kind of allegedly imperfect human uh, with the uh, the Captain Kirk, right? He's capturing better because, uh, in in spite of his imperfection, in, in a way, you know, the, the uh, Spock is, he's seeing things or feeling things that Spock is kind of alien to. And so, mm. our emotions are here for a reason to make us better at, at doing what we have to do, at uh, work working with other people, uh, you know, uh, being uh, willing to cooperate with other people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so that's. Um, um, we're not rational like the old economic models, but I, but I, it doesn't mean that that the way we are is is wrong. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and on that note of emotions, I think it's a common a common straw man or a potential argument that people make that if they are, you know, let's say there's a debate team and one person is getting quite visibly upset. Or annoyed at the point that the opposition team is making a common retort or a common objection as well. Look at the opponent; they're now getting upset because they're not making they're uh, they're, they're not because they can't you know refute what I'm saying. They're getting upset. Um, that's sort of a common, I would say, rebuttal. At least what I've seen uh, in terms of like rhetorical tactics. So, and you made the point earlier that you know emotions, in a sense, actually make can make you more rational. So what do you mean by that? And could you explore that a bit? Yeah, I mean, emotions, you know, I think you, you can think about several types of emotions. Uh, one type of emotions is all the kind of good feelings that you have. Um, you know, feeling good or bad about some things, even if you can't really put mm. kind of reason about it. Um, let's imagine, you know, you are... Um, you move to a new university. Uh, you get a, a, a. You're going to start a, a study to study in a new university. You have to move. Mm. You have to look for a flat in a city, and so you visit a few flats. And 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 on one morning you visit one flat, and very quickly you have to decide whether you want to say that you want the flat or not. Um, surely part of your decision making is going to be that you look for specific things and you can reason about it. But part of your decision making is going to be a gut feeling. You know, you feel mm. that. It looks good. You feel good about the place, or mm. inversely, you don't feel good about it. And I think it is said that you know, in this kind of situation, people are able to make their mind almost in a, in a few minutes. Mm. Uh, and, and when you think about what are these emotions, these gut feelings, a view from before would be that these gut feelings they are kind of you know, uh, uh, not rational well-shaped ideas and so that you're going to be influenced by wrong things but a more modern uh view of these emotions informed from modern cognitive science modern neuroscience is to think that as you enter this flat your brain uh, is going to process a lot of information um you know you are going to pick up uh, things things like whether the light is good um already before entering you had looked at the you know whether the, the, mm. the neighborhood is safe 
how far mm -hmm. it is from amenities and from uh, mm -hmm. the train station, et cetera, et cetera. And all these, even if you don't have to have a little voice in your head thinking about, you know, like talking a lot, saying, yeah, that's great. Uh, this accumulates in terms of positives or negative feelings. And so these mm -hmm. feelings, these girl feelings, you can think of it as uh, your brain having processed a lot of information and giving value to it and sending mm -hmm. you a signal. You can think of that, the little voice in your head as being the CEO of a big company. And how does the CEO make a makes a decision? Well, the CEO is asking his or her advisors, you know, what is the best thing to do? And he's get here, the CEO he gets a reports about, you know, uh, the decision as on this aspect is good, the decision on this aspect is dangerous. And in a way, you know, the different brain processes uh, which analyze the information you're getting from visiting are giving you this feeling. So, you know, you get a feeling for the safety of the neighborhood. You get a feeling for how much lightning there is in, in the uh, lighting days in the room. You get a feeling mm -hmm. for the space. You get a feeling maybe if the door is creaking. And all these feelings accumulate to give you an overall feeling which helps you make a decision. And if these feelings overwhelmingly go in one direction, then your decision is made. You don't need to think about it. You know, like if I was to ask you, what do you think? It's like, oh, no, I don't, I don't like it. Mm. Um, and it's only when you know, these feelings are going to be ambiguous because there is some positive aspects and some negative aspects that you find hard to make a decision. And then maybe you're going to to be starting to be, you know, thinking, mm. oh, okay, let me think about it. You know, it's a difficult decision, etc. So these emotions, they are not, in that view, these emotions are not something which are polluting, which is noise polluting your decision. They are really the mm. background uh, treatment of information from your brain, uh, which picks up a lot of things. And very likely in a very efficient way. That is, you know, uh, it picks up from your memory, match what you see now with uh, your past experience, you know, which was positive or negative to help you make a decision now. So that's the first type of emotions uh, that we have, these girl feelings. The, there is another type of emotions which are social emotions like love and anger. Um, and these we now have very good uh, understanding about why it's likely that they are, uh, they help you make decisions in social interactions. So uh, one thing that you face often in social interactions is that having too many options is a disadvantage. So it, it's, a, it's a kind of a puzzle. It's called the, the commitment uh, uh, paradox uh, or the commitment problem. Um, you know, if you have too many options, in particular, if you have exit options, uh, then people knowing that you have exit options can take advantage of that. Uh, by pushing you and knowing that, you know, maybe you will choose your exit options and that's going to benefit them. Uh, and so one strategic solution to avoid that is to uh, remove your exit option. So, it, you know, you have famous examples. You're a general arriving with your army in a new country. And what you do, you, you burn your ships. Tell everybody, you know, that we're not going back. So there's no exit option. We're only going forward or you burn the bridge behind you. Uh, and similarly, some of these emotions can help you actually uh, remove some of your options, which makes you uh, more convincing in social interaction. Mm. So anger is a perfect example. You know, you we may think the first reactions when you think about anger is, why would we be angry? I mean, it seems like a very bad uh, thing. Often people make a lot of mistakes when they're angry. They, they do things that they regret eventually. So it looks like a very bad idea of being angry. But... Now let's think about something else. Let's think about you know um, a situation where uh, you've got a bully. Uh, he's uh, uh, bigger uh, than you. 
and every you know you're at school and every lunchtime he comes and picks up your sandwich. Uh, so now the problem is that because uh, your exit option is not to do anything and you know to 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 um, uh, to accept and and to uh, to try to avoid him as possible, um, and you could on the contrary you could fight. You could say you know, but if you fight, the problem is that it's very costly and you're going likely to be um, to to um, uh, to lose. So because the bully knows that you have an exit option, which is to avoid conflict. He can come every day and do that to you every day. Now imagine that, you know, instead of having this, you have very strong emotions like anger, which in spite of the risk of, you know, fighting back would lead you to reject absolutely the idea of being bullied. And you, you're willing to, to take the risk and to say no and, to, and to, to be conflictual. Well, in that case, you know, if the bully knows that's the case, that you can get angry, and then you may retaliate. Even if you would win in a fight, you may think twice because you may think, okay, I would win, but then, you know, it's not anymore a cheap sandwich I'm getting. It's a sandwich plus a fight and who knows what can happen. You know, it's not as a nice option. And so as a consequence, the bully may decide to leave you in peace. And so this strong emotion of anger, uh, if it makes you if it makes you credible at, um, it makes credible that you would potentially retaliate, even if it's a bad idea in the sense that you know you 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 could get injured or something like that. It can increase your ability to convince others, and in this case, this bully, uh, to leave you in peace. And so these emotions, um, there's emotions like love, anger. Um, and shame and, 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 and uh, for instance, they can help uh, you remove some of these options that you have uh, in social interactions. And as a consequence, they make you better at interacting with other people. Yeah, absolutely. So if I was just to summarize those two points, so the first point being gut feelings or gut reactions, you would say that gut feeling is essentially a reflection of a huge amount of data that you're processing within a few seconds. And so to, to discredit it by saying, well, it's just a feeling, it's not based on any empirical sort of blah, blah, blah. You, the counter would be, well, you know, your, your brain is an incredibly powerful tool and to sort of exactly. second guess that is, yeah. uh, is, a uh, not only is it, uh, perhaps, uh, uh, maybe simplistic, but it's also, uh, discounting the evolutionary tools that we have been built with um and then social emotions well i mean perhaps at times they can lead you in in bad places but you would say overall they encourage and influence positive uh, decision making in like an optimal way would you say yes and 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 one of the you know it, it's it's hard to explain it in a, very quickly but the key intuition here is that you have this paradox of commitment which means that Sometimes being overly rational is uh, can be detrimental in social interactions. Mm. So, you know, if I know that you are very rational, then I can push you a bit because I know that you know um, uh, retaliating may be too costly for you. So I can push you a bit and take advantage of that. I know that you're not, you know, uh, if I know that I'm playing with Mr. Spock, well, I can maybe I can take a chunk of his sandwich because he's not going to uh, to start mm. to put a fight for me taking a chunk of his sandwich. But because of that. Every day, maybe I'm able to take a chunk of his sandwich just below, you know, uh, the situation where he thinks it's worth fighting. Now, if instead of being against Mr. Spock, I'm against uh, uh, Captain Kirk, that's to be different because now, you know, who knows? Maybe he's going to get angry. And if I take any piece of his sandwich, he'll say, what are you doing? You know, that's my sandwich. Mm -hmm. And he may have a reaction which is disproportionate relative to what it is because maybe it's mm -hmm. just a piece of sandwich. 
But once I know that he would react in a disproportionate way, which may seem irrational, I will not pick anymore a bit of a sandwich. So, you know, in what economists we talk equilibrium, that is, in what's going to happen, me mm. knowing that he would react disproportionately, I'm not going to uh, try to do anything to him. And then, so anger will not need to be activated. So you have this kind of thing, anger, in a way, it's great that we have it, and that most often we don't need to activate it. We don't need to be angry because in part, because people know that if they were doing stuff bad to us, we would get angry. And so it's only in rare situations where you know uh, people disagree or people make mistakes that people get angry. But in most uh, situations, like we don't need to get angry because people anticipate that if they were doing some stuff to us, uh, even mm-hmm. minor things, uh, we would get we get angry at obviously different levels uh, of anger. But that's um, that's the way it works. So you know, it's when we see people getting angry and doing things a bit um, over the top. It may seem strange, but in a way, we are out of equilibrium in this kind of situations. That is, we don't see mm-hmm. that the benefits of anger are all the benefits that we we get from all the situations that are not happening. You know, people not pushing. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that we're not pushovers means that uh, we get a lot of benefit from that. Mm, definitely. And so, I mean, a question I'd be wondering is, so in terms of using emotions to stick on anger, for example, let's say in this situation, uh, to not show your anger would be a mistake, would you say? Uh, because you're not you're you're sort of fighting against the inherent feeling uh, that may be uh, quote unquote rational in that moment, right? So for a bully, like you feel angry to be bullied, right? And so to demonstrate that emotion would be rational. But I also see how that can that can quickly slip into putting yourself in a bad position. So is the nuance that it may be rational, but it so, may not be the best decision or what's the... Look, that's an excellent question. You know, one of the um, uh, convincing facts which show that, you know, this tragic role of emotions is the fact that all propensity to feel this emotion is actually not absolute. It really, it's going to depend on the strategic situation. And I think you'll understand that this very well. If I, if I change my bully example with, um, uh, you know, you have like in the bully example, the bully is very strong. So the bully would most likely beat you in a fight. But if somebody who is, you know, smaller than you tried to get your sandwich, uh, you know, uh, and maybe he's, he managed to grab your sandwich start to take to take a bite. Well, you may feel angry. And what we find is that people get much more angry in situations where, uh, they would be more likely to win. So, you know, if in a way, the, <laughs> the bigger the bully, the, the least angry you'll feel. It's not that you're trying not to feel angry. You may still feel angry, but even the kind of natural emotions that you're going to feel is kind of calibrated to the situation because it would be a bad idea of, you know, you, you've got somebody who is like, uh, mm. uh, who's just out of prison, uh, with, uh, uh, very tall, very muscly, and and mm-hmm. re- repeated for being very violent and it takes your sandwich and you get really mad you know maybe that's not the best situation to get angry um and so w- research has shown that um, men in particular get more angry against other men in situation where um physically you know they're all the same size or and they're yeah, less yeah, yeah. angry if, if they face a potentially a larger opponent um mm-hmm. but similarly you know the these emotions they i mean the idea here is that these emotions they help you uh, navigate this this um, these uh, social interactions mm. 
to get an advantage. And so if you were overly angry in, uh, against somebody who was too strong, that would not be good. You have other um, situations uh, where um, you may want to uh, kind of uh, rationally uh, mitigate your, your feelings. Um, and potentially here is that, uh, uh, you know, our feelings may not always be calibrated for the kind of situation we face in the real world. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it, it is very likely that we the type of emotions we feel have been kind of designed uh, by evolution over time for us to be very good at some specific type of interactions. Mm -hmm. And we are now uh, thrown into very different types of situations often than our ancestors. So an example, for instance, is that if you, if you look at if you were to take a time machine and go back in time, like mm. you know, three thousand or ten thousand years ago, mm. you see that most humanity was living in, in very small uh, uh, communities. There was a level of violence which is which people often really do not realize. That is, there was like it's easy to have something like thirty percent of people commit murder or mm. are the mm. victim of a murder in their lifetime uh, in these times. Um, and so, having very strong emotions uh, potentially. We have to think like the emotion of anger, for instance, is very important in situations for people not to take advantage of you, but also the level of these emotions may be very, maybe quite high to kind of prompt you to engage in this kind of violence act, which are going to deter other people. Mm -hmm. And then now you take us, I mean, you take these kind of emotions and you throw us in kind of very much more peaceful environment in modern organizations. And then, you know, that's your colleague who, should have uh, sent your report at midnight. Uh, and it's very important for your promotion. And uh, instead of that, uh, he played all night video game. And when you, you know, talk to him in the next morning, he's also have not done it. Uh, your, you know, if you get angry, the kind of emotion that you may feel may not be well calibrated to the kind of situations where we are in a peaceful environment mm -hmm. where people are going to collaborate over a long time. You know, so that's so in that case. Uh, that's my, one reason maybe where, where you should kind of try to manage right. your anger, uh, not to burn your bridges uh, for, <laughs> you know, people you have, you're not going to enter in a warfare, in a physical warfare with people most of them. So you have to work out mm. these agreements and we still ha have these emotions which may not be ideally suited for these new, more peaceful environments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just to summarize in, in addressing the question, so there may be a slight mismatch in terms of the degree to which we feel things and how to actually respond to them, but that doesn't necessarily mean we need to discount how we feel overall, just because yeah. they are very relevant to our evolutionary past. Um. So, I mean, this, this takes, uh, this is a, a good segue. So into our next question. So we had recently Professor Ben Newell, the professor of cognitive psychology at UNSW on the podcast. And he uh, basically said uh, the, the, one of the key takeaways is that our, our uh, everything that we do in terms of how we think about things in re regards to cognitive bias explicitly is a result of our evolutionary past. So we've been, we have been um, essentially uh, via natural selection, we have evolved in such a way that has allowed us to have these inbuilt biases. Um, and we talked a little bit about that, but the title of your book is, um, is optimally irrational, which to me, it sounds like the suggestion is perhaps there's a healthy amount of irrationality, which makes us 
the best versions of ourselves. So uh, could you go into a bit more detail of what it means to be optimally irrational and how does that link with evolutionary biology? Yeah, well, it's um, Ben is obviously totally right that, you know, everything which characterizes us, uh, and not just us, you know, any any animal on the planet, uh, is is the result of evolution. Uh, and of the, all the problems that our ancestors, who were successful, you know, uh, Richard Dawkins said something very insightful that we have to realize how, you know, we are, if we're here alive, it means that we are the descendant of a line of all successful ancestors in a mm. world uh, which is uh, not very charitable, uh, where you know they had to survive finding food and resources, finding a mate and uh, avoiding being killed in wars, etc. So, uh, and and it's not just human ancestors, you know, primate ancestors, mammals, etc. So mm -hmm. we are the product of this long line of people and organisms having to make decisions and make the right decisions. And so that's that's how our um, uh, psychological traits or decision mechanisms have been selected. So now, in the book, I take this view to try to um, uh, I'm I'm rejecting a bit in a way the the uh, the typical way behavioral, behavioral economics has been presented. You know, if you were to ask people what is behavioral economics, I think the standard answer is. Well, we, we study the fact that people are irrational, they make mistakes, uh, they don't behave like in the old classical model, like Mr. Spock. And it is totally true that behavioral economics, you know, as I said, add a layers of psychology, interesting psychology uh, beyond the, the Mr. Spock model, which was the old economic model. But I think that characterizing behavioral economics as the fact that we find that people are irrational um, is, I don't think it's the best way of, 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 of doing it. I mean, it's true that people make mistakes and, and some, of, some of the reasons are the kind of mismatch that we already mentioned, mismatch between you know, the reasons or the way we've been selected by evolution and the new environment we're facing. But often, um, a lot of what we call biases are actually good solutions to the problem we face. And you know, when there is a risk when you're a behavioral scientist looking at something something that some people do strange things and if you don't understand them you say it's a bias i mean well okay it's a real question here is it a bias or is it that your model about what people should do is wrong you know so there's you need to be really convinced that your model is a right one that you understand exactly the kind of problem people are facing that people are trying to answer to label what they are doing as wrong and, and the risk is that you've got a situation and people are facing a specific uh, type of problems that they understand pretty well and they're trying to do their best. And the behavioral scientist doesn't consider all uh, what's happening in the situation, all the layers of complexity. And as a consequence, the, uh, the behavioral scientists you know, label this kind of behavior irrational. So in the book, uh, I show that, you know, in a way, we should have much more faith into um, the... Um, the fact that we are pretty good at making decisions because we've been selected by evolutions and and often a lot of the biases are actually good solutions so i could give you two examples uh maybe yeah I'll, please do I'll, I'll start with um you know the um, um anybody who has worked or looked, looked a bit at behavioral economics knew the uh, know the um, the prospect theory utility function the fact that people um 
care about gains and losses. And so your subjective satisfaction follows a kind of S shape. So, you know, relative to a reference point, you, you enjoy getting gains. You feel like great having wins, but you, have, you know, the first gains are, are those who bring you the most subjective satisfaction and then it decreases over time. And then for losses, it's the same thing. You don't like losses, but the first loss are the most painful ones. And then as you get more and more losses, you feel less and less about these additional losses. So you have subjective satisfaction, which follow an S shape uh, centered around zero, which, you're, which is your reference point. And this, is, this has typically been considered as a bias, as a kind of, you know, why would you have this reference point? Um, it leads to a, a, some behavioral patterns which looks wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you think about subjective satisfaction, what is subjective satisfaction? Uh, let's try to think. Let's try to ask a question. Could this be a good, a good, uh, a, a, a good way of making decisions or of having this kind of subjective satisfaction? Well, subjective satisfaction. You can really think of it as a way for you to help you make good decisions. It's a kind of signal. It's an information telling you that decision is good. Continue doing it, or that decision is bad. You know, bad negative satisfaction. Don't do it. So you feel positive satisfaction when you take a good coffee in the morning, uh, when your friends write to you and say, you it's great, I want to see you. You know, when you, uh, when you experience positive things, these are positive situations that are good for you. So you should uh, try to go toward them. And you feel negative satisfactions for things like, you know, putting your hand on the hot stove, uh, your girlfriend saying, sorry, I'm breaking up with you. You know, all these things are bad. And so give you negative satisfaction. So, now, if you think about that, how should this subjective satisfaction work? Well, you only need two, two things to have this kind of A shape like the prospect theory, and they are very credible things. One thing is that uh, your brain is, is, a, is a limited system with a limited number of neurons who can fire a limited amount of times. So basically, if satisfaction is kind of an information about how good the situation is likely to be, it's a signal, this signal it cannot go from minus infinity to plus infinity. It has to be bounded in a way. You know, if you have neurons firing saying that's great, uh, there's a limited number. There may be millions of neurons, but there's a limited number of neurons who can fire and say it's great. So you have a situation when you have the maximum happiness, maximum satisfaction you can feel is when, let's say, all your uh, neurons dedicated to measure this uh, subjective satisfaction are firing as fast as they can saying that's great. You know, maybe your, your team win the World Cup, football World Cup, that's at, the, at that moment, everything is firing up, you're super happy. Uh, and on the contrary, if everything is bad, uh, all these neurons are uh, low activity and so you feel very bad. So you have these bounds, uh, minimum satisfaction, maximum satisfaction. Then you just need another thing, which is that our perception is imperfect. So, you know, if I give you two pens and I tell you which pen is the uh, heaviest, you may struggle because their the weight is the same. I mean, maybe if you put them in a balance, which is like very, very precise, you will find that one is heavier than the other, but your perception is not as precise. So you'll struggle. You'll be like, oh, I don't know, they, they feel the same. And similarly, if I give you two options, which are very close uh, in characteristics, you may feel like, you know, you don't know. I, I, I tell you, do, do you want to, you know, do you want this to, to live in this flat or this flat? And they're pretty similar in characteristics. You may be, uh, I'm not sure. Okay. So 
because you have this imprecision, you would want your uh, subjective satisfaction to be more discriminating in the cases which are in the situations that you're the most likely to encounter. And, and a very simple um, um, consequence of that is that uh, this subjective satisfaction should not be like a line between minimum and maximum, but it should be steeper because that allows you to make to, to, to feel bigger differences between the options that you consider. And it should be steeper uh, in the air in the range of outcomes that you're most likely going to face. So you know, if most of the day, uh, for instance, like let's say you're a punter, and most of the most of the day you're a punter gambling hundred dollars, then you know to, to to choose between the gambles you're making, you should be you should have the right feelings when you're considering gambles with hundred dollars. And so your utility function should be very steep. Your subjective satisfaction should be very steep for you to feel that this gamble is much better than this one around hundred dollars. Apart from that. If I was to come and tell you, do you want these two gambles and they involve millions of dollars, they may feel a bit the same because they're way out of your range, okay? And if I was to present you gambles about 10 cents, once again, you may feel a bit the same because they're out of your range. And so your utility function would have this A shape and that would be the optimal way for you to make a decision. It would be flat in, in the kind of situations that you don't encounter, you know, the gambles with a million dollars or the gamble with 10 cents, and it would be steep in the situations that you're encountering. A gambles with $100. So that's the first example where this thing like the S-shaped utility function, which has been thought as being market-free rationality, once you, once you just understand the kind of physical constraint that our brain faces when making decision, it, it, it then emerged naturally as an optimal solution. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, I mean, just to summarize, uh, uh, to summarize it all, essentially, in one context, what uh, what is considered a bias in a completely different context could be considered an advantage, an evolutionary advantage. So, in the context of uh, our brain chemistry, or perhaps uh, energy, we have a limited amount of energy, and we also have a limited amount of neurons. So, there's only so much we can do with the limited amount of neurons we can do. So. What we've evolved to do is have uh, the first loss and the first gain to be uh, to be the strongest that we feel um, to reflect these limitation limitations. Which uh, you know, it se it seems so incredible when you put it in that context uh, that it's a it's a, a resolution to a very hard problem. It's a resolution to a very hard problem, and you you rightly said it. I think you said you react to your first gains and first loss, and it makes sense because you should be sensitive around where you are now, because that make, you know, that's where you are likely to make decisions when you, you observe, you know, are you going up or are you going down relative to where you are now? So you should be sensitive to that. It allows you to make good decisions. Um, if I was to tell you, for instance, do you want to, uh, do you, do you want to have a, a gambles where one, you can win $5 million, another one, you can gain $6 million, you know, they may feel now a bit the same because, you know, we usually typically wouldn't have that much money. But if you were somebody working in a hedge fund right, where you handle millions of dollars all the time, then that you may feel very different about that because then you, your utility function would be calibrated to make the decision in this range. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think intuitively we all, at least from me speaking, uh, so for example, maybe losing money. And so let's say you uh, have a particularly, there's one week where you go to the bars and you accidentally spend too much money and you think, oh my God, I've 
that's i've spent way too much and my budget my my budget doesn't accommodate for this then the next week you do it you're like oh well i mean i've done it last week so i it, it doesn't feel as bad i don't know maybe this is i'm just making something up but that's how i'm sort of using uh, viewing what you're saying um and perhaps slightly different but uh i think is related is related to optimal inattention so i saw that you were giving a pre presentation and you used this term so essentially uh in the in the context of focusing on on anything focusing on a task uh yeah. our brain yeah. our brain can only focus uh so much energy on a specific task and it makes sense right because we have limited neurons limited energy so i think there's the video that everyone has seen where there's a gorilla uh, that right. walks in the middle of yeah. a team playing basketball and if you're focused and the objective is count the amount of times the ball's passed yeah. and you will never see the gorilla right which I think everyone has seen. But I think this is also a good example of a similar concept, which is saying that it's a bias, yes. Um, however, it is a solution to a really difficult problem. You're, exactly. You're totally right. So I'm, I, you know, I, could, I said I would, give, I would give you two examples and I can take this one as a second example indeed. Um, I think it is, um, we, are, we have a wrong impression about the fact that, uh, you know, our brain is kind of tri tricking us into thinking that we observe the world as it is. Um, the uh, one very obvious way of seeing that it's not the case, that, you know, we have um, the optic nerve at the back of our eye uh, kind of uh, obstruct one small area of our eye when you can't see. So actually, in, te in terms of stimulus, that, visual stimulus that you get from the external world, there is a black patch without uh, a stimulus that you, you do not get from the outside world. Um, and you can see, you know, you, you can find online experiments when you can actually see that by moving a letter, for instance, like that, you stop, and don't, you, you don't see the letter anymore, right? And so there's this patch where you do not get visual inputs. And mm -hmm. what happens is that your brain fills the gap. Your brain doesn't tell you, you know, you don't hang up arms with like, you know, a, a, a dark patch saying, you don't see here, you don't know what's going on here. Your brain says, everything is fine. You know, I'm filling mm. the gap. It's like an AI filter, you know, filling the gap, looking at uh, doing the photoshopping live. Uh, mm. And what happens is that with your saccades of your eyes, you have enough information to kind of fill the gap to use the past information to, you know, assume that if I, the world has not changed in this area of since the last you know, half a second, and then your, 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 your brain uh, pretends that you see the world as it is, but you don't see the world as it is. That's one obvious thing um, with this, uh, your optical nerve. But when you think about a more fundamental thing is that consider when you take a digital camera and you, you take a movie of, of you know, uh, your kid playing football on, on, on the football pitch mm. and you take 10 seconds and you, you, you say, oh, I'm going to send the video to grandma and you look at it, oh, it's 50 meg, you know? It's 10 seconds uh, on your camera, it's 50 meg when you have the video and you have the sound, think about, the amount of information just flowing in your brain at any seconds, the information coming from the outside world in terms of you know, the visual inputs, the sound, sound input, et cetera, and your camera is not even processing the information to make decisions. The camera is not thinking, should I send it to grandma? You, you're the one thinking that. So you have to live in a world with a stream of data, incredible amount of information all the time, and you need to process this, this information to understand what's happening and what should I do. So now your brain is very efficient 
Uh, it only mm -hmm. works on 20 watts. Uh, and it's an amazingly efficient, you know, when you think about the decision it's making and which can now work with very complex computers. And they do some things like playing chess or doing mathematics much better than our brain. But, you know, uh, until now, like we start having AI when you can chat and they start looking a bit human, but they are pretty poor in social situations, right? Social situations, making decisions, et cetera. It's very complex. And so your brain is excellent at doing that. But how does mm -hmm. it do it? It's in the flow of information that you're getting, you, you need to only to, to optimize how you process information. So you have all this information, but only a fraction of this information that you're getting is relevant to make a decision. Okay. So, you know, when I take a movie of my kid playing football or football pitch, there's plenty yeah. of information which is not relevant. First, you know, maybe I care about my kid. So, you know, if there's another kid and the past of the other kid is not good, you know, maybe it doesn't matter too much to me. So I'm going to focus on my kid and, you know, something on, on my kid are not even relevant. Maybe, you know, he's not put a button properly on his shirt, but that's not a relevant information. So I can mm. ignore a lot of information mm. and, and my brain is going to do that. And so optimal attention and the example we gave of the um, gorilla, it's an excellent demonstration of that. That is... You had this experiment with people in white and people in black, and the, the psychologist says, well, you know, uh, people are going to move back to play basketball, and you need to count the passes in the white team. So when you have people with white t-shirt, they, they pass basketball, and you're counting. And so you have one goal. When, when you see this visual stream of information, your brain has only one goal. Get the ball, the number of passes right. So you focus because you think that's the key thing in the experiment. And when there's a, a guy dressed as a gorilla moving in the background, thumping his chest in the middle of everybody and moving away, it's indeed, I think two thirds of people on average say that they didn't see it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but is it a bias? Well, I think it's, 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 it's a trick. It's a trick which kind of, you know, create a very unusual situation where the fact that all brain is optimized to uh, really make the best decision by minimizing the information content that is extracted from reality to focus on what's relevant to make the decision. Obviously, the psychologist has created a situation when there's something obviously totally unlikely uh, uh, that a gorilla is going to move. And so we're not, and also by telling you, you know, you have to focus on this stuff. Uh, and so we're not designed to see that. And it, it, it shows how our brain works. But that's not a mistake. That's actually a reflection about how good or, mm. you know, how optimized our brain is to focus on the very thin slice of reality to make decisions. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there's so many, so many good questions to ask now. Um, with, with everything in mind that we've been speaking about, about how biases in one context is an advantage in another context. For me, this is um, quite stimulating, especially in the context of big problems. So like climate change. So, uh, what Ben Newell said last time, if he had the power to change humans uh, in a positive way to reflect behavioral science, one of the things that he said is he would try and make people more future oriented, uh, given the the problems that uh, like climate change pose a huge risk to, uh, to future peoples, right? And um, so to me, this bias uh, in conjunction with problems like climate change is to me is quite 
given the context that you've just laid out is is sounds very very challenging because we've evolved to be one way and there's going to be problems that are in our evolutionary blind spot so to speak so trying to get together all 193 countries aiming towards a specific goal in conjunction with uh, the complexity of business interests with the complexity of government interests with the complexity of geopolitics there's a lot going on so to me this is quite uh, I guess one on one hand scary it's on another hand challenging and then on another hand it's very exciting because it means that uh, we have to think of new ways to resolve these problems which is what we're all trying and currently doing and mm-hmm. um, how might our decision making processes need to change in order to effectively address these big challenges look I think it's a good point I mean when you said Ben Newell um, um, said um, we should try to make people more future-ended. Um, I think it's very likely true because if you think about it, one key difference between the world of a few um, thousand years ago and an old world is that time horizons we're facing. Uh, you know, let's let's take a time machine again and and jump you know ten thousand years ago and what is the kind of longest time horizons? Um, Already one year is very long, right? One you you may face a one-year time horizon when you have to think about um, agricultural decisions, but that's you know ten thousand years ago. I mean that would not be even the case, right? So um, you have to maybe maybe you have to think about building something which is going to last uh, some time, etc. But the time horizon our ancestor would have faced would be very much much different than now. No, nowadays. You have um, young people who start their career at 20 who have to think about their retirement options there, how much to save for uh, in 40 years, having you know retirement plans. Um, and you have institutions which kind of allows, uh, which allow this to happen. You have banks who, you know, not all the time that we're learning that, you know, from time to time that banks can disappear, but most of the time banks don't disappear and governments who uh, back your pension scheme usually don't disappear either or not frequently. And so you have all these institutions and uh, allowing you to trust and to engage in this very long decision-making, long time horizon decision-making. Um, but our psychologically is not, was not designed for that. And I think that something we need to appreciate is how uh, how unusual our modern environment is in the history of humanity. You know, if you you see that often, if you look at the, you know, the, the history of humanity, uh, like uh, from 100 million years ago, or not 100 million years ago, so 100,000 years ago to now, uh, or early ancestors to now, you'd find that, um, uh, modern times, which is like basically uh, when pe- people live mostly in urban environment with this kind of long-term horizon, is what, 200 years old in most places, you know? Uh, and so this is a very tiny fraction of the history of humanity. And so basically we have this situation where our ancestors and all our psychology has been shaped in environments which have been very, very different. And then we're thrown very quickly, historically, in this radically modern, different environment. And we have to make decisions. And handling these long-term horizons is not something for which, you know, we were talking about the calibration of our utility function 
all subjective satisfaction. Well, all subjective satisfaction or, or expected subjective satisfaction is not well calibrated to handle this kind of uh, decisions. And, and, and then now I think it, this naturally leads to the discussions about climate change. Because when you think about climate change, well, you're thinking of time horizons, which can potentially be even bigger than, you know, it's more than 40 years. You have to think about maybe uh, the next generation and, and the generation afterwards, you know. And so uh, that makes it very hard for us to weigh, to trade off, to make this kind of trade off. You know, if I tell you, do you want a hot coffee or a hot chocolate? Uh, your kind of decision making process are well calibrated to assess what's your preference. Um, but if I tell you, do you want, you know, a bigger car now to uh, to do some uh, four-wheel driving in, in the country, uh, or, or do you want to vote for a policy which prevents that to happen because, you know, that's polluting too much, um, uh, you know, our decision-making system is not well designed for us to handle this kind of stuff. And so a natural a risk is that even though if you ask people and if you ask me, people say, well, Obviously, I would prefer to be, you know, to make sure that there is no um, um, massive climate change with costly evolutions of climate, etc., and which uh, would be incurred by future generation. Uh, we may not be very good at acting, kind of implementing policies right now, and pretty much in the same way as, you know, you may want to be uh, fit, but every day you may be eating too much chocolate uh, relative to what you should do, right? So you like the idea of being fit and healthy, but maybe every day you, you eat a bit too much, or you like the idea of saving money, but you know every month you spend a bit too much on games, et cetera, et cetera. So we, this kind of problem is always the same, is that we are living with much longer horizons, and we may have an inbuilt preference for now, which means that it's not necessarily that we ignore the fact that you know, some things in the long term needs to be uh, considered, but it's harder for us to properly make decisions when we take that into account and and, and make the right trade-offs in the present. Mm. And I suppose, let's say in some other evolutionary context, for some reason, we became very future-oriented, uh, so much so that we uh, are not, we're more future-oriented than uh, oriented in short term. I imagine that would pose all sorts of risks to life itself and so for it to be any other way would potentially not even be possible so uh, that's at least what i would guess um so i mean with that in mind with this sort of evolutionary challenge with uh this with climate being in a p potential blind spot how do you how do you think we can sort of overcome this uh how do you think we can overcome this sort of behavioral challenge where we're evolved to be one way, but uh, our existence uh, it almost it requires us to be another way. Is it just a matter of collective action or what would you say? Yeah, um, I'm not sure how much we can change people. Um, that's a good question. Um, I think we need to make uh, to improve the uh, awareness of people about these problems and, and to try to transform this awareness in the willingness to act, even yeah. if just to, you know, not necessarily to act as a kind of 
everybody has to have this kind of feeling of moral duty of of of, mm, of mm. saving energy and 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 using electric cars is kind of um mm. more in terms of the willing to act in terms of when you have to vote for candidates to kind of requ require candidates for whom you vote to uh, have this you know as part of their platform that they want to implement so i think it's i'm not sure we can change you know like uh this kind of stuff i mean in the same way as uh it's hard to change the fact that we struggle to go on a diet we struggle to stop mm. our bad habits you know people uh like people before like 20 years ago don't people don't smoke too much anymore but people when people were mm. smoking are trying to stop smoking and they were uh finding finding it very hard to stop smoking now nowadays people try to stop uh mm using their uh, social media account too much and they uh, mm. hide their iPhone or something like that and they, they still get back to it so th this kind of thing is kind of you know I don't think I'm not sure we can reshape human psychology mm. and avoid that aspect mm. but I think a key thing is to make people aware of the situation mm. of the, the 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 challenges which needs to be addressed um mm -hmm. yeah and in that in that perspective, I think a big thing that is important is to avoid another danger, which is likely to be an impediment to people taking actions, is the fact that these, um, these questions nowadays in some countries, they have begun embroiled in terms of very um, um, debates between very polarized groups. Okay, mm. so if you look in the US, in, for instance, um, you have uh, some groups who like climate is very important. If you ignore it, it's terrible. And some others say, well, there's no proof of climate change, etc. And in a very polarized situation, uh, people don't get receptive anymore because they engage in terms of kind of um, they belong to groups. Mm. It's another kind of this behavior which I, I, yeah, I yeah. talked about in my book. But if you belong to a group and if your beliefs is a mark of you know of which group you belong to, then you're not here. You, you're not open anymore to listen to the debate about mm -hmm. what's happening in climate change, because uh, you know uh, if your group says one thing, you want to say the same thing, and you'll mm -hmm. be willing to accept much worse arguments if they go alongside with your group, mm -hmm. uh, and you're going to be blind. You're going to try to shut your ear and to be much more critical for mm -hmm. arguments which come from the other side. And so, I think one of the worst things which can happen is for a, a global issue like climate change, which is key for uh, the planet, to be uh, taken in this kind of wars between groups which are very divided. Mm. Because then it is very hard to reach a public consensus. And, and, and I think here is part of the duty of the scientists um, not to be, I would say it's counterproductive when scientists take sides. And unfortunately, you know, I mean, it's understandable that in the US, mm. most scientists tend to be left-leaning like everywhere, well, at least in the developed world. Mm. And during the Trump presidency, I think lots of scientists were inclined to take sides. And, you know, I, yeah, for sure. I think we can understand. But the consequence of that is that then they, they, they can get labeled as, you know, one group. And so what I means that is their voices, when they try to say something which has to reach all the population, is, is going to... You know, you're going to convince the people who don't need to be convinced because they're already in your camp and say, yes, yes, yes. And then when you mm. try to reach out, people say, well, you know, we know who you are, you're on the other camp. And so I think key thing is to try really to reach, not to make it um, 
not to score political points. I mean, climate change is too important. It's not to engage in the mm. next political election to say that this candidate is bad. I think the scientists should really try to, re to reach everybody because in the long term, everybody, even people, you know, we individually can disagree politically with. Everybody has, we have a collective shared interest into the world, mm. you know, not get going too bad too quickly. So mm -hmm. that's the thing I think to try really to, to reach out to the people uh, we're skeptical in a neutral, uh, mm. neutral way. Yeah. So if I was just to sort of repeat what you're saying based on what I'm understanding, so to try and rewire evolutionary, uh, <laughs> our evolutionary condition is perhaps uh, uh, not a adventure we should go down to tackle it, and perhaps it's not even possible. But what we can do is to mitigate things that inflame certain slash biases slash advantages so for example having beliefs that are foundational uh, making certain sort of issues politicized and then making them foundational to your identity uh so much so that if there's a contradiction because it's foundational you no longer want to be receptive to critical to yeah. critical uh, engagement so um so in in a, in a strange way uh uh, and a fascinating way uh, uh we we should be very very careful about politicizing certain issues any issues really that are that are um that may be in these blind spots because uh it will lead to inaction which will then lead to the problem becoming worse is that a fair summarization well i think that um in the case of climate change, I think, yes, you, you, uh, I mean, and, and it's not, I mean, there's a kind of general argument, but not doing it in general, you know, not uh, 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 trying to avoid for the issue to become kind of uh, part of this very kind of uh, short-term political debates mm. and, and being on one side, because in that case, you're losing, uh, you're losing a big chunk of people, you know, if, well, if you have two parties, you may potentially lose 50% mm -hmm. of the population. Uh, you want it to be consensual as much as possible. And, 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 and I guess you want to, to find the ways of reaching out the people who currently disagree. Uh, one risk, and it's natural, it's easy, is, is that you, know, you end up talking to people who agree with you. Mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps that's one of the risks of social media, for instance. Like, you know, if I'm... If I'm a, not necessarily a scientist, but if I'm a kind of a, uh, a person uh, reaching an audience, it's be it's easier for me to get a following by saying something that one specific mm. group uh, will like, but that's going to put me in this group. And so, um, so the risk is that you know it divides the, the space. And so, how do we how do we get to the other side? And if it's very polarized, maybe this group wants to hear something very much, mm. but as if you deliver that to this group, then you can't reach out and engage the other group. Yeah, so for sure. That's a challenge. And and I, yeah, so I would say, you know, if we, how do we talk to people who don't uh, believe in it? How do we engage them respectfully? Because often the risk is that, you know, there's this kind of, uh, uh, we could easily go in, some people go into some kind of condescending attitude, you know, you trust yeah, the science, you know, with, you've got people with the PhDs and you've got the mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. with conspiracy <laughs> yeah. theories. And so, um, but 
I think you you will you rarely find in history that people are convinced when they are being insulted or when they are you know mm. that um, it's not an argument, it's a criticism. So yeah, how yeah. do we reach to people who don't believe in it, and how do we make the case in in a kind of uh, a consensual way? That's 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 difficult. Maybe not mm. in, in some countries like Australia, where the political debate is not very um, uh, conflictual as much as in other countries, but I can see yep. how in some countries like the US is, is, is a challenge. Mm, yeah, for sure. And I suppose on a last sort of related question on this point, I, I, the story that I told at the beginning of the podcast was about, uh, in essence, conspiracy theories. And I, I said it's irrational, but uh, I think I may sort of step back a second and just say, if there's a group of people that believe in something that has uh, it's threatening their worldview, it makes sense to believe in that because the alternative is that they fear that whatever their their world will collapse, right? So, would you say, in a in a in a in a in a sense that it may be rational to believe in things that on a on a logical basis don't actually make any sense, but from perhaps an emotional point of view, they make complete sense, right? If you feel that for some reason the world is going to end, you will you will try to group together, do X, Y, and Z to sort of protect your own safety, right? Would you would you sort of say it, it's maybe doesn't not logical but rational? Would you would you say that? Um, yeah, I would say that. I would also I think it's a very good question you're asking here. Um, let's take let's take something which is unambiguously wrong, like that. You can think of that as a kind of benchmark, yep, yep. You know, where everybody everybody listening. Would agree. Let almost, I guess, ninety nine point nine. Let's yeah. consider, you know, people who think that the Earth is flat. So you've yep. got now, you've got the a flat Earth society, and you know, it's a bit of a lot of jokes. But you think, like, wait a minute, like, surely you don't believe this kind of stuff. Like you've got enough people now finding themselves on the internet, and they have a society, and, and they have conventions, and etc. So now you wonder. How is this possible? What happens with that? And, and, and then people invest time, people build arguments about why the earth is flat and the evidence that it's wrong is fake, it's NASA is mm. lying to mm. you, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So you can wonder how, how this kind of stuff happens. But what you have to think is that um, our ability to reason, to argue, to make points was not selected by evolution for us to find the truth. You know, if we want to be very mm, pragmatic. Yeah. Our ability to reason was not selected because our ancestors looked at the sky and were wondering, you know, uh, how the motion in the space happens. You know, what what are the law of nature? And if you if you were answering these questions better, you were more successful in life. No, people were more successful in life where people were convincing other people. Like you know, be in my team, be in my coalition, join my band, trade with me, you know, do mm, this deal with mm. me, etc. So um, you. When you do these kind of discussions, you need to put arguments. You know, be join my coalition because we are strong, because we're mm. trustworthy, because we're better than the other, etc. Uh, and when you do that, when you have these kind of arguments, you do not act as a scientist. You act as a lawyer. You have a cause. You have an interest. You have your. You defend your mm. cause, and you want to put your cause under the best light to convince other people to do the right thing for you. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the conditions under which our brains has been selected, like in terms of building reason. So our reasoning ability is tailored to for us to act as advocates, as lawyers of what is good for us. Um, mm. 
obviously that means that we need to you know we can't be just a lawyer who's going to say anything because we would not have a good reputation so uh, there's mm. a kind of need of consistency and also not only we need to advocate but we need to be also on the other side is when somebody advocates we need to try to uh, uh, pick holes in the arguments is wait a minute mm. you tell me you know this is a great opportunity but i remember last time you said that and it was not etc et <laughs> so, you know you try to find the logical flaws at the same time you try to make the base case forward uh uh you know so you try to be as consistent as possible but consistency is not your goal your goal is conviction mm. and once mm. you take this view which is uh being uh, uh, proposed by um, um uh, uh um, Dan Sperber and uh, um, Hugo, um, his name is, excuse me, suddenly, um, two mm -hmm. psychologists. Uh, these, um, once you take this view, um, you understand that uh, 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 that's a feature of what we have. So now you take off, you take the flat of society. Well, in this microcosm, you have the social space where you know um, you can have a higher social status. If you bring the best arguments, you know, you go the if you start believing because you have this strange view that Earth is flat, but now you have a community, uh, you can gain, you know, a, a standing in the community by being the person who brings the best mm. argument forward or who debunks or would criticize uh, the, the opposition argument, etc. Mm. And mm. so you have this kind of social competition internally to be the best person in your group. And what you can see in the society, like the flat of society, you find it everywhere. If you are in a climate change denial situation, it is the mm. same thing. You know, some people are going to spend a lot of time trying to find the best stories, you know, mm. uh, creating doubts about the fact that climate change is real or climate change is important. And you will get clout uh, in your community mm. by spreading the thing. It's going to be the same thing if you are, for instance, against vaccines. Uh, you know, if you can find something which suggests mm. that maybe it's not maybe a very good argument, but people in your community are going to be receptive to it because we are all, mm. you know, the lawyers of this same cause. You are going to get to gain clouds and you want to believe it and you sell the story to people who want to believe it. And this, it's easy to look at this and say, oh, yes, it's conspiracy theory. But I think we have to see that the same thing happens if you are in a standard, uh, totally mainstream political group. Uh, you would mm. have exactly the same thing happening, mm. uh, except yeah. that your arguments may be better, and you you know you may have more constraint by the kind of stuff you're going mm. to say. But we have to recognize that uh, a, a lot of the problems uh, which surface in political debates is because we are not engaged in these political debates as neutral scientists trying to find the truth. We are we are committed to some groups. Uh, mm. And we have social standing, depending on our ability to be a good representant, mm. uh, representative of this group. And so, mm. Mm. you know, um, if we are kind of popular in the climate change community and somebody gives us a very good argument against it, well, it's not really in our interest to say, yeah, it's true. And, you know, I, I, mm. yeah. I should remove, remove myself from this, uh, from being very popular in the climate change community. Uh, and so a lot of the debates you have on social media between pundits, they are heavily invested in, you know, mm. being representative of some groups. And so, you know, they won't change their mind easily because that's not really what they are. You know, they are lawyers for their cause and their cause is very strong, strongly telling them, you know, uh, that's what you should defend. So that, mm. that's a key mm. problem leading to all this. You, you look at the debates and say, why are people saying all these weird arguments, etc.? We have to appreciate that it's because we're not designed to have, you know, neutral scientific arguments.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, just to summarize that, I thought that was brilliant. So, I mean, just to summarize that all, you know, we're, we're not, we haven't evolved to seek truth. We've evolved to build tribes and survive essentially and seek the best positions in society, which allow us to thrive in a sense. And so I'm sure people that believe in the flat earth society, whoever is the president, he probably feels like the president of the world or she feels like the president of the world, right? They feel that they're playing an important role. Um, and so to simply dismiss it on the basis of logic is fundamentally missing the point in, in which people are not searching. People are not seeking truth necessarily. They're seeking, I guess, belonging, uh, uh, they're, they're seeking survival. They're seeking all these sorts of things. Um, yeah, great. Fantastic. Well, look, I, I think that's a really good place to wrap up, uh, professor, um, as a final question, and we asked this to all of, I guess, or we try to at least. Um, I wanted to ask if you could construct a utopia, your own utopia in the distant future, what would your utopia look like? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure. I think, um, I think there's lots of... Uh, there's lots of win-win situations to get. I'm going to say something which is not very uh, dreamlike sure. utopia. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, maybe because I'm too much of an economist. I think there's <laughs> a lot of win-win situation. I think one of the frustrating uh, facts that you see is that a lot of the bad situations we're in now, which we could characterize as bad equilibrium, and you could take the same people, and in another history, they, they could be doing much better. So, you know, um, in societies, for instance, where people are divided and, and there's conflicts, uh, the same people in another history, you know, if you were thinking of like multi-world hypothesis, uh, another thing happened in the past and the world moves in a different way and, and people will be getting along well in that world and something else happened in the past and instead people are in conflict. And I think that what you want is to uh, uh, try to find how you bring societies to situations where they're in positive equilibria, where um, people can cooperate, people can trust in each other, uh, et cetera. Um, uh, so that's a challenge, that's a challenge. And, and the moment you see a lot of uh, societies which are divided, obviously there's between countries, you know, uh, as there's war at the moment in Europe, um, but within countries as well, uh, according to different lines, et cetera. Uh, and given that we face global challenges, uh, one of the key ch- challenges, how we get people together, how we reduce conflicts. Uh, unfortunately, the political space is not designed to solve this stuff because people are in the political space, uh, their interest is to be elected. And sometimes, not a- all the time, but sometimes, uh, you know, being divisive uh, or kind of uh, getting a strong support from a very uh, energized minority can be a strategy that you want to follow and to, to, to gain power. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily pay to say everybody should be together. Sometimes it's better to be, you know, I'm your guy and all group is right. And, you know, they are wrong. And that's 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 going to bring people to the year and voting for you. So I think that's the biggest challenge. And I, 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 if we could find ways to get, yeah, to get societies a bit more peaceful, uh, uh, that would be, a, that'd be great. So I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I don't know how future will be, there, but that would be my my hope that we can we can go towards the situation. No, I think that's I think that's fantastic, and uh, 
and um and i hope we can uh i hope i could we can be in your utopia as well because that sounds like a, a great place and look uh that sh- that's everything professor thank you very much for joining me if people want to find you or want to ask you questions or want to buy your book uh, where can they where can they find that well the book is um available at cambridge university press so uh, they can google optimally irrational uh it's um it's a book written for uh, a broad public i'll try to be as clear as possible and it's quite an ambitious book which reviews really the literature and behavioral economics so if you are interested in behavioral economics the book is going to review all this literature so you're going to see to learn about behavioral economics but also really with this angle about trying to explain why we behave the way we behave providing the kind of recent old and recent explanations uh, so i think this book has really takes a different angle than most of the books in behavioral economics um, and i think it's it's a welcome I mean, it's easy to say that it's my book but i think it's a welcome <laughs> book in the in the current times i can i can say that for you it's it's a welcome <laughs> change there you go <laughs> Thank you. well I, I think there's there's um um there is a people are looking now for you know we have had like 20 years of behavioral economics now uh, which is being popular for quite some time so people are looking for okay you know um we think that people be, don't behave like the old models but but what why and so i think the book kind of provides this kind of what is the next step of behavioral science so this book you know if you're interested by all means uh check it out um and then otherwise if people are interested to you know to 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 to, to, to follow me I'm, I'm often on tweeting stuff on twitter i'm trying to contribute positively to the uh, public uh, uh interactions on twitter you know trying along the lines of, of what i've said in this podcast so obviously people are much welcome to, to find me there fantastic well stay with me in the groomer and the but thank you for joining me thank you thank you Xavier.